This message is from Living Rock Church, and we trust you'll be really equipped, envisioned, and encouraged as you listen today. It's good to be here. Oh, I'm already on. Look at that. Wow. You're good. Um... It's been great and a real honor and a privilege to be able to be here and to be in Coventry over these last few days. It's good to belong to the family of God and to, um, to be able to minister together, to be able to build together, and to be able to be with friends and family across the world. It really is uh, an honor and a privilege. Um, as I said yesterday, um, I, I, I grew up in a Christian home. Um, I thought I'd just take a little bit and tell you a uh, little bit about my story, kind of where I've come from and how, um, how God has led me. Um, if throughout the course of our first session, if, uh, if there are things I say that you want to ask questions about, uh, either about the way that things have kind of developed in Canada or in Cuba, or uh, some, of the th- some of the scriptures that we look at, we'll take some uh, questions in the second session. Sound good? So if you think of things, you can just write them down. And then we'll just take a spot, and uh, you can raise your hand, and you can ask any hard questions. I'll refer to Richard, all right? Um, so I grew up in a, in a Christian home. I had the benefit and the privilege. I, I have a debt of gratitude to my parents um, because I grew up in a home that, that prioritized the presence of God. So I didn't just know about God. I didn't just know the rules and the regulations. I didn't just know about going to church, and I also, and this was a tricky one, I didn't just know the culture around Christianity, that, well, because we're Christians, these, this is the type of music we listen to, this is the, we watch these types of movies, or we don't do this, and we, we don't go to these kinds of, we don't play these kinds of cards, I grew up in a bit of a strict church, uh, um, but in, in our home, it was really about the presence of God, it was about reading the word and knowing his presence, and I have... I have fond memories as a child um, where we would just read the word as a family. And I didn't understand any of it. But you pick up on the atmosphere. I was like three and four and five. You pick up on the atmosphere of your home, the atmosphere of your parents. And I can remember uh, reading the Bible and having not really any understanding, but knowing that I could see the lights going on for my parents. And also, I remember times where we would just, we would laugh our heads off. And the time... There was no Toronto blessing yet. Uh, We had no idea what it was. All we knew is when we read the word together as a family, we would just laugh. And we would just laugh and laugh. And uh, now, you know, looking back, I was like, huh, that was really just a dynamic in the Holy Spirit that we didn't know kind of existed. We just enjoyed it before it happened or before it had a name. Um, But some of my earliest recollections um, as a child are knowing the sense of the presence of God. And at the same time, knowing the sense of the call of God on my life. I've known since as far back as I can remember that I was called to lead God's people. It's not the same for every ministry and every apostolic ministry. Um, you've got, you know, David's got a thesis on apostolic ministry. He's certainly qualified to be able to teach on I, I, I'm talking about, for me, the call of God on my own life. And for me, I knew it from when I was a child, since my, some of my earliest memories. Um, 
But I didn't know where to put it because the church I grew up in, you were either a pastor or a missionary. And those were the options. Um, and you started as a youth leader. And then you became, if you were really good, a deacon. And then after about 30 years, if you were really good, you might go and get a small house group. And then that house group, if you grew it, could become your church and you became the pastor of that house group. And that was kind of it. And none of it, none of it seemed to fit with me or with what I thought God was calling me to do. But I just gave myself to, uh, to looking to grow in him. It was great because I'm kind of happy that until I was uh, in my late teens, I'd never even heard the word apostles or prophets, evangelists or pastors. I never heard any of that stuff. I never understood anything about the kingdom of God or covenant or restoration. All I knew was I had a relationship with Jesus who loved me and I could find him in the word. And I would read through. And I remember as a probably about a 10-year-old boy um, being (laughs) sent to my room um, for doing something I probably shouldn't have done to my sister, and uh, being sent to my room, and uh, I was bored, so I read the Bible. And I had given my life to, to Christ uh, many times as a child. Uh, my dad was into Jimmy Swaggart. I don't know if you know, if you know him over here, but he's a TV evangelist. And uh, so we watched, you know, with TV, a TV evangelist we could, and every time he said, you know, if you need Jesus in your heart, come and touch the TV screen. And every time I'd go and touch the TV screen, and, and then of course it was an old TV, so I'd feel the static and think it was Jesus. <laughs> it's the Holy Spirit, Dad. <laughs> um, incidentally, I felt, I felt the same Holy Spirit when I rubbed my socks on the floor as a kid. <laughs> He's everywhere. Um, so I gave my life to the Lord consecutively, but of course had times where I had to own it. And I remember one time going upstairs and um, just sitting on my bed and talking to God and, and just having a moment where you know how much he loves you. And because you grew up in his presence, you, you, you know his voice. And because you grew up reading the word, you know what his voice sounds like. The Bible says, he that has an ear... Um, let him hear. It says, faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of God. It's not faith comes from hearing the word of God. It's faith comes from hearing and the ability to hear comes from the word of God. Yes. If you want to grow your spiritual ears, you grow your ears by reading the word of God. Yes. There's a lot of people who are trying to listen to the still small voice of God, but haven't given themselves to the loud written word of God. And so they've got small ears, which causes them to be flaky. If all, if all, the only time you hear God is just direct from heaven to you, but you've not learned to grow your ears from the word, there's all kinds of times you, you think you hear God, but it's not God. You just, you just haven't grown your ears. Um, so anyway, I remember God, God speaking to me another time, and... Uh, he told me to turn, I just felt in my spirit to turn to the book of James, which I loved because it was short. And I, I could always say, I read a whole book in the Bible, Dad. Oh, good job, son. He never asked which one it was. I think secretly he knew. So I pretty much memorized James um, by accident. <coughs> but there's a spot in James where it just says, if any man lacks wisdom, God will give it to him without finding fault. 
this became a scripture that I would just regularly repeat to myself and ask the Lord, God, I need wisdom. And the best part about the scripture is it says that he'll give it to us without finding fault. That means he's giving it to us simply because we've asked, not because we've earned it. Not because we've been good enough that week. And as a child growing up, you, you always have these times where you feel suddenly guilty about an attitude or a habit or an action. <coughs> and the accuser of the brethren would come and say, how can you ask God for anything? Look at what you're like. But then the word comes alive and it says, without finding fault. I'm going to give you wisdom. Um, all right. Um, turn with me, please, to Genesis Genesis chapter 1. So for me, as I grew up, while you're turning there, I'll just tell you a little more of my story. As I grew up, <coughs> I remember seeing a pamphlet for something called the Go Teams. Anyone remember those or heard of those? Um, in the UK. And... I was at a juncture in my life, one of those ones where I had just kind of redecided that I was going to give my life to Jesus for the 62nd time, uh, that he was going to have every aspect of my life, but there was a girl that I liked, and I had a car, and I was about to buy a canoe. I had saved up enough money to buy a canoe. That's what you do as a kid in Canada, and uh, I was pretty excited about it, and I was just finishing high school. And I thought, well, this girl, but she, she wasn't a Christian. But I thought, I like her, and I'd like to get to know her a little bit better. I want to, you know, buy this canoe. And then I saw this pamphlet, and it kind of jumped at me to go on this go team where you learn more about Jesus, and you have evangelism, and you get to come to the beautiful metropolis of Bradford. <laughs> and uh, so I prayed about it, and I felt God was in it. But for me, I said, God... This is my fleece. Uh, I said, God, if you're in it, I need to know because I really want to go this direction. Um, but I, I feel you're calling me over here. If you're in it, as you know, I've got enough money for a canoe, which will pay for my flights. But the cost for the program was about $6,000 for the year. And I said, God, I don't have any of that. And my family doesn't have any money. So I said, you're going to have to supply the funds. And this was on a Friday. And on Sunday... I got a phone call from a gentleman. Uh, my parents are like, Steve, it's the phone, for you. the phone is for you, Sunday morning. And I pick up the, the phone, and it's this guy who lives in a city about, about eight hours' drive from my house. And he said, I was delivering, someone was delivering furniture to me on Friday, and I, I asked them if they knew anybody who needed funding for overseas school and overseas missionary work or evangelism. And your name came up. And the weird thing is, the person delivering the furniture, I have no idea who he was. It was just some random name. He goes, but he gave me your name and number. And so he says, tell me about the program. So I read him the pamphlet of the GO team. And he says, okay, I'll put the check in the mail in the morning. And I've never met him. I've still never met him. He had no interest in meeting, no interest in me knowing who he was. But a few days later, I got a check in the mail for the entire cost of the GO team. So obviously I got on a plane, came over here, and my first uh, couple of days was spent at Nettle Hill, up the road. And uh, I remember I was outside playing a little bit of basketball, 
And uh, <coughs> there were these two guys, uh, in my mind, two old guys, loading some magazines into the back of a car. And I looked at these magazines, they're called uh, Covenant News. And they're loading these magazines. And I said, hey, guys, you need a hand with those, uh, those boxes? And they're like, sure. So I helped them put all these boxes into this nice Jaguar. And, uh, and I was talking to the guy, this guy about his car, because I was into cars. Anyway, I go inside, and one of the go-teamers goes, uh, so I saw you outside uh, talking to the apostles. And I was like, what? And they're like, yeah, that was Bryn and Carey. And I was like, I don't know who they are. And I said, but Paul was an apostle. Peter was an apostle. John was an apostle. I don't know who those guys are, but apostles don't exist today. <laughs> Is the stance I took at Nettle Hill. <laughs> it didn't last long. I had a lot of unlearning to do. Uh, I had a lot of unlearning to do. But that year, I was 17, that year um, I began to see in Scripture for the first time restoration, the nature of the church, the kingdom of God. I began to see things like apostles and prophets pastors, evangelists, and teachers. I began to see the kingdom of God. I'd never seen it. I remember somebody asking me at the beginning, what's the kingdom of God? And I was like, heaven. That's honestly what I thought it was. It's just heaven. And I began to see these things, and they took a hold, these things took a hold of my life. And I've never been the same since. And like someone, maybe Todd, said yes at some point here, I think. Um, When you hear the truth... And suddenly it, it, it comes alive on the inside of you and you realize it was there all along in seed form. You just not heard, the word hadn't become alive yet, but it was already there because God had placed it in you. And that's what that, that first year of Go Team was like for me. And then I stayed on staff at the church in Bradford for a couple more years and continued just to have teaching of this sort of stuff. Um, thoroughly enjoyed it. it. It was so hard to unlearn. That was the hardest part. I loved learning. But unlearning was so difficult because I loved my teachers. I loved the people. They were good, sincere, godly, well-meaning people who had taught me the word of God. There were simply things that they had taught me meaning well, but they didn't have the apostolic foundations underneath them. So it was hard for me to unlearn. But once I got used to it and then began to leave behind these things, I was able to embrace the revelation that God always had destined me to walk in. And then I went back to Canada, I did my degree, and then I came back to Covenant College, and that's where I met Richard, and uh, then I went back to Canada, and uh, we were asked by Kerry to move to the church in Ottawa, and at that time, the church was about 30 people, Sarah, my wife, and I had been married for a year, we prayed about it, we moved right downtown, Just felt that the church needed to plant downtown, that's what God has spoken to us, and God blessed us, and the church has grown, and I asked the Lord, I said, God, I want the initial places that this, where we begin to break ground. Can we grow simply on the basis of the fruit of what we're doing in Ottawa, first off? I know there's times where God will speak to a, about a city or a nation, and you'll have to just go on a word, and you'll break ground. That's part of it. I understand that. But I asked him, I said, at the beginning, just while I'm getting used to... Uh, knowing the call of God in this way on my life, can we grow simply on the basis of fruit? And that's how we've grown so far in Ottawa, the church in the East Coast, and now there's a a couple of others that are going to begin, are simply from people who had come to Ottawa. They'd been baptized in water, filled with the Spirit, understood a lot of the things that I just sort of described, had a similar sort of experience, went back home, and all their friends realized, you are not the same person, and something gathers around them, and we've been able to disciple 
a group like that and a few other places in Montreal and Trent Hills um, and Peterborough, which you, you are probably familiar with that church. And the same thing in Cuba uh, with brothers who just came to go to university at Cuba, had their lives sort of transformed by the gospel and went back and found other people who were looking and finding the same things in scripture. And God did a, a, a knitting in our heart. We've been working together for about seven years now. All right, that leads us to the present. <laughs> Genesis. Um, 1 verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. All right. I think the New Living Translation says, Be masters over all areas of life. This is the very first prophetic word over you and over me. It's the very first prophetic word over mankind. I've met so many people who have said, um, I'd like to get a prophetic word. I've never had a prophetic word. And I've said, that's not true. That's impossible. Because there's a loud, written prophetic word right here over all of us. That is that it's always been God's intention to fill this earth with people that look like him and who are masters over all areas of life. Not masters in our own right, but masters because we look like him, because we're created to be in his likeness. It's always been God's attention, and it still is. That's what God's about on his earth. He will fill this earth with his likeness. That is his glory. What he is, everything that he does, and everything that he is. All of his character, all of his power. He's going to fill this earth with his glory and he's going to fill it by sons and daughters men and women who are created in his likeness in his image in his glory that's how this earth is going to know who God is simply by looking at me and looking at you all right we know the story we're not we don't have time to go through it tonight we know the story from here Adam makes a choice. Adam and Eve make a choice. They want to be lords of their own life. They make a choice to depart from the fellowship, from the relationship, from the lordship of God. And they want to go their own way. And they sin and they listen to a serpent that they shouldn't have been listening to. And as soon as they listen to a serpent, disorder is introduced into creation. This is something that's so foreign to the heart of God. It's so foreign to the relationship between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, who are in themselves a, a covenant relationship. And suddenly disorder is introduced into creation. And this phrase is uttered for the first time in the garden. Adam, where are you? God hadn't lost him. It's not like he didn't know where he was. He knew where he was. He was highlighting the point to Adam, what happened to our fellowship? What happened to our union? What happened to our intimacy? And because it's a, it's a prophetic book, of course, um, in Genesis 2 and 3, because sin had happened in the garden, then the father had to shed innocent blood. When he finally finds Adam, Adam's like, well, 
And this, this is just to give you an illustration of the level of disorder that entered into creation. First thing is, there's a spiritual disorder. Adam, where are you? And I heard you, but I ran. And I hid because I was afraid. I was ashamed. And there's a disorder that has entered into humankind and their relationship with God. There's a spiritual disorder. Then he says, I was guilty. I was ashamed. I was afraid. And suddenly something, even in the psyche, in the emotion of man, there's a disorder. There was something that was not meant to be in the created order. There's a disorder in mankind enters in because of sin. And then, second, and then thirdly, between man and fellow man, he's, he says, I don't know whose fault this is. It's, it's this woman that you gave me. It's not my fault. It's either her fault or it's your fault. You gave me to her, so you decide between you. <laughs> and between man and fellow man, there's a disorder. And then finally, there's a pathetic attempt to cover up their own sin and their own nakedness and their own guilt and their own shame. And they get some fig leaves, but innocent blood had to be shed. It's a prophetic picture, of course, of Christ coming. Where in the garden, in the perfect garden, suddenly the father has to take an innocent animal and the sounds of death are heard in the garden. The last couple of years, Sarah and I have been farmers and that was, getting animals is fun, but there's a little process before they go from looking really cute and alive to being on your plate. Uh, and suddenly, in the garden, for the first time, the sounds of death are heard. And blood is shed as a prophetic sign that a time will come when an innocent man will have his blood shed to bring order back to disorder. All right, let's jump to Matthew chapter 16, where Jesus talks a little bit about his church. I think Todd read some of this the other night. Matthew chapter 16, verse um, 15. But what about you, he asked. This is Jesus speaking. Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it, or will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. He warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. All right, so here we have this, in this, this encounter that's been preached, at, preached about a lot. It's a f scripture that's very familiar to all of us. You have, G you have Peter who says, for the first time, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And he says, this was indiscernible by your human reasoning. 
this had to be revealed to you by the Father. Who Christ is is not attainable simply with our natural faculties. That's why so, so many people misunderstand who he is because they're only employing their natural faculties and you can't simply discern who Jesus is. And he says, this was not revealed to you by man. There's no way that you could discern this on your own. This only comes to you through revelation. And it's still the same thing, is that to understand who Christ is comes by revelation, comes as a gift from the Father. It's supernatural, it's spiritual. And he says, <coughs> this has come to you by my Father, and I tell you that you are Peter. He changes his name. In the Bible, of course, it's significant. It has to do with changing his identity, changing his makeup, changing his, the call of God on his life. And, and that's true for all of us. When we see who Christ is, something changes on the inside of us. It's as if we get a whole new name. Because we've suddenly seen Christ. And when we see Christ, that's how we then have a revelation of who we are. And in a minute, we begin to understand the purpose that he's called us to in the kingdom and in the church. But it starts first with a revelation of Christ. Simply seeing him for who he is. As you see him, he shows us who we are and who we are in him. You are, from here on, Peter. This is who you truly are. And he says this. Upon this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Or the NIV doesn't help us here. Uh, says won't overcome it. It means prevail against the church that he is building. So Jesus is building his church. And this is announced as soon as there's a revelation that he's the Christ. So you are the Christ. Jesus says, yes, I am. This is who you are. And I'm going to build my church. Jesus is building his church. It's not me. It's not David. It's not Matthew. It's not any individual. Jesus is building his church. Our job as ministries, our job as servants is simply to cooperate, to partner with what he's doing. It's simply what he's doing. He will build his church. This was a paradigm shift for me a few years ago because I used to think that, okay, I need to build the church. I need to plant churches, I need to build a church, I've got I've to do this, I've got to do that. And I had lots of ideas. And, <clears throat> and then I, someone told me, okay, it's time to go plant over in this area here. The prophetic word, go plant over in this town called Gatineau, which is on the French side of Ottawa. And uh, immediately I began to think, okay, well, I wonder if we have enough sound equipment. I wonder where we're going to meet on a Sunday morning. I wonder how tithes and offerings are going to work. Are we going to do joint? Are we going to do a separate? What about um, musicians? What about kids' work? What about this? What about that? And I began to conclude that we did not have the resources to plant the church over there. The problem was Jesus was building his church over there. There were people being saved. There were people being transformed. The gospel was taking a hold of people's lives. People were being discipled. People were having a revelation of who Christ is. It was taking ownership of their life, and they wanted to be involved with what he was doing. But I didn't have enough resources or microphones. <laughs> and, and it began to shift a paradigm for me 
that my job is to keep in step with what he's doing. And where he's building his church, I simply need to cooperate. And I grew up in a church that understood and preached quite vehemently that the church was not the building. And that's, and that's fantastic and that's true. So I always believe that the church is in the building. But it took me a long time to realize that the church isn't the meeting. That it's not the Sunday morning meeting. The meeting is the meeting of the church. But that the church is the people. Jesus says, I will build my church. He's building his house of people. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So he says this next phrase, the gates of hell will not, or the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Against what? Against the church that he is building. Against the ongoing forward momentum of the church that Christ is is building. Ern Baxter used to say it this way. I've never been attacked by a gate. That's what he always used to say. I've never been, gates are, have one purpose and they're defensive. They're to prevent entry. And it says the gates of Hades will not prevail against the the church that Christ is building. I grew up in a denominational background that believed that Christ was going to come back and rescue eight of us hiding in a basement before the rapture came if there was any faith left on the earth. And that the church was going to go out and defeat and that he was going to rescue a, a, a few of us because he got here just in time. That is a gospel that is contrary to the gospel of the scripture. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church that Christ is building. Then he says this. I'm going to move quickly because there's another scripture I want to talk about. And then we'll take a break. Um, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth. And if you have the NIV, it says it a little more accurately in the footnotes. Will have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. I will give you the, I'm going to build my church and I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom. And you begin to catch a glimpse of the relationship between the church and the kingdom. And he says, whatever you bind on earth is that which has already been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth is that which has been loosed in heaven. The role of the church is to bring the realities of the already present kingdom of heaven and cause them to become the realities of earth. So that as the church moves forward and it confronts the kingdom of darkness, the kingdoms of this world, we look and we see something. We see, wait a minute, sickness is bound in heaven. And we're the church... And we're founded on the fact that he, on the revelation that he is the Christ, that is, he is the Messiah, he is the anointed one, he's the one on whom God poured the person of the Holy Spirit to to equip us to get this job done. He's the Christ, and because we see that, we've become the church, and now that we're the church, we've been given the keys of the kingdom, and this does not belong. This is from a different kingdom, and I've been sent from another kingdom to cause that reality to be made manifest here. And, and, and this is the church that he's building. All right, I'm going to move quickly. <laughs> I'm not even through my first page. <laughs> all right, buckle up. Um, <laughs> all right, I'm just going to mention um, a handful of things This is not exhaustive. This is just something from my recent observation. 
that there is a, an unprecedented growing hunger in this world for the church to stand up. Amen. For the church to be built. Not the church made by human hands, not the ideas of men, not the, the, the pyramid with the, the one superstar on top, but the church, the body of Christ, to stand up in the world. And there's a hunger in this world. In fact, all of creation is groaning Amen. for us to stand up, for the sons of God to stand up and to be recognized. I'm going to mention really quickly just a, a couple of things that I believe are the characteristics of the hunger in the world for, to, to see made manifest in the church. The first of all, first of all, which I think is great that David's doing this, this series, is clear leadership. The Bible has a plan for the leadership of the church. And it's not simply one man who's the superstar in the super ministry doing everything. He's got apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers. There's elders, there's deacons, there's ministry gifts. God has a plan for the church and he wants it to be clear. And he want, and the church that he is building will be built according to the pattern. Yeah. Right. And he's arising builders to whom he can show the heavenly blueprint. Yeah. Say this is what the house of God looks like. Yeah. All right. Number two, a church that is causing this world to be restored to the purpose and the plan of God. A church that preaches and teaches and, more importantly, experiences restoration. That it's not simply about trying to get the community to come into our buildings for our meetings, but that the church is sent to community to see the community transformed. Because we are men and women who have seen the Christ, had our lives transformed, had our identity transformed, had our purpose and call transformed. And because of that, we are then sent into a world as ambassadors of the kingdom of heaven. To see the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. To see the bride made pure and spotless, as Tony has taught us, meaning that she's not immature and she's not too old. She's just right. She has no spots of immaturity. She has no blemishes or wrinkles of age where the church has arisen and she has taken her place at the perfect time. Where the church that God is building, you'll find it in scripture, is the family of God. The the family of God is a functional family. The church that he's building is the temple of God. That is, it's meant to be representation of the headquarters of the presence of God. He is building his temple on the earth. And it's not a building. It's not a meeting. Although meetings are a part of that, buildings are conducive to that. We're not against these things, but we recognize what it is he's building. And he's building people. He's building an army that is there to rout an enemy, where there's order, where there's discipline. I love the fact that he's building a family and he's building an army. Because these things, they have the characteristics and the attributes are so different, and he's building both. 
He's creating and planting a vineyard that is productive, that'll produce a new wine. There's so many images, and we won't go through them all, there's so many images of what it is that God is building when it comes to the church. We're going to turn to one more in just a minute of the lampstands. But the lampstands are lit. They have a light on them. All right, number three. Another characteristic that the world is hungry for to see the church rise up in, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God to salvation. That there is no human philosophy, no man-made psychology, no pattern of doing things outside of the purpose and plan of God that is the hope for the world. It's the, it's the gospel of the Christ Jesus that is the hope for this world. Outside of the person of Christ, there is no hope for the world. And so all of our hope, all of our plans, all of our help for people, all of our advice, all of our systems, all of our programs are centered around this one fact. There is only one hope in this world, and it's the gospel of the Christ. It's the gospel of Jesus. Where all of our own plans and ideas and psychologies and philosophies, where all of these uh, have fallen away because everything is centered on the person of the Christ. Amen. Number four, I already touched on this one. I might have lost my numbers. I hope it's number four. Uh, a church that represents the glory of God. I remember I used to read um, Romans chapter three, and it used to be my proof text to, my, to friends that, that everyone had sinned. Romans 3, I think it's 23. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And this is how it read to me. For all have sinned and something else. That's how it read to me. That really that verse is just about how everyone has sinned. And I would use it, see, everyone has sinned. Everyone has sinned. You're not excused. Everyone has sinned. But I, it took me a while to suddenly for the other half of the verse to jump out at me and fallen short of something that they were intended for, and that's the glory of God. To represent, when we, when we sinned, when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, we fell short of something, the glory of God. The good news is, the blood that was prophesied about in the garden was actually made manifest in the person of Jesus, who took away our sin. And because he took away our sin, we're restored to the original mandate, which was to represent the glory for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, there's good news. That the sin problem has been dealt with. Not just the problem of the specific sins, but because of what Jesus has done, the actual nature of sin has been dealt with on the inside of me. And now we're restored to the glory of God. The world is hungry for a church that isn't waiting around to get to heaven. Neither are we simply the suffering church because we're worms because we're just wretches, we're always going to be terrible. How does he even stand our presence? Why does he even come near us, God? We're just awful. We're so thankful you'll even look at us. No, he dealt with the problem of sin in his son. So when he looks at us, he sees his son. And he wants to form in us the glory. And we're meant to go then from strength to strength and glory to glory. That is one representation of the glory of God. One dimension of the characteristics of God and the power of God to another dimension, to a a higher dimension and we're, that's how we're meant to continue through life 
we've been restored to the glory of God, and the world is hungry for a church that will represent his glory. Number five, which I'm probably going to skip because I talked about it a little bit yesterday. A church that understands that we're here to worship him. And the power of spiritual worship. Not just singing songs, not just the culture around worship as we talked about, yeah, it was yesterday. Um, All those things are fine. Our, Our time singing, even our devotion time, our time reading in the word, All those things are great, but they're simply meant to be a conduit into the presence of God. And to the degree that they don't usher us into the presence of God, they are useless. There is no value, there's no merit in simply doing a quiet time and reading some words on a a paper if it doesn't usher you into an encounter with a person. Otherwise, we're just stuck with our mind. And there's there's no way that we can apprehend who Christ is Fully with just our mind. Our mind is useful, our mind is productive, but our mind is secondary to our spirit. And our spirit is the place, it's the incubator, it's the apprehender of revelation. Um, Go to 9.30, right? All right, I'm going to... I'm going to touch on one more. There's lots more, but I'm just going to touch on one more. And that is a church, and Todd, Todd hit a little bit on this, but a church that is prophetic. A church that is prophetic realizes that we have an ability and the responsibility to cause the things that are of the coming age to become a reality right now. It's like with Mary, when Jesus inaugurates his ministry, they're at the wedding. She says this to the guys, Jesus is out of wine. He says, woman, it's not my time. She turns to the other servants and says, follow him and do exactly what he tells you to do. And if you can hear what I'm saying in this, even though Jesus was saying in, in, in a way, this isn't my time. By her faith and her obedience, she caused something that was from, for something that was a season to come to be made manifest at the wedding. And suddenly there was a new, there's new wine at the wedding that is the best wine. It's like the merchant with the pearl who finds it, hides it again, and it says, in his great joy, he went and sold all that he has so that he could go and purchase that field and get that treasure. It's so funny because he had a joy of something that was to come. He did not yet possess the field, but he'd seen something. This is what the kingdom of God is like. This is why it says the kingdom of heaven is like this. And it says like a merchant who sees something, he sees something of such great value, he knows it's going to cost him everything he has, and he still values it as worth it. It's worth it, and I'm going to get rid of everything I have, and it's going to be worth it. Not only is it going to be worth it, I'm not doing it begrudgingly, I'm not doing it half-hearted, I'm doing it in joy, because prophetic people can live in the joy of a coming season, even though it's not yet been made manifest in their life. 
It's a prophetic church that causes the things that are not yet to become already. That's why Jesus said to to the woman in the scripture we read yesterday, a time is coming and has already come. And a prophetic church is a church, excuse me, that shifts that line and reaches into the not yet and says, no, that's going to become now. Reaches into the realities of heaven, looks at the realities of earth and says, this earth is going to look like that and we're going to cause it to happen right now. And the violent will move that line forward by force. One more. Okay, one more, and then we'll move on. Um, A church that the world is hungry for is a church of real faith. Not believism, not formulas, but faith in a person. A person. Real faith. A church that knows how to contend. I was talking to somebody the other day from uh, Kings where Elijah sends the servant to go check if the rain is coming, see if the cloud the size of a man's hand. He says seven times he sent him. He knew Elijah here was contending for something. He had heard something already. He knew what the word of the Lord was, but he was contending for something. And he didn't give up. He didn't grow weary contending for the purpose of God and for the promises of God that he had been shown. I'm not going to spend much time talking about that one. But the church is a church of faith that doesn't grow weary contending. We don't see everything yet, but what we do see... We don't see everything subject to him yet. We don't see all the fulfillment of all the promises yet. But what we do see is a person. We see Christ. We see him glorified. We see him high and lifted up. And we fix our eyes on him until all of his enemies are made or put under his feet. All right. Instead of training another scripture, why don't we take a little break and then uh, what we'll do, tell you what. Let's all stand for a minute. Everyone stretch. Give someone a hug or a punch. You can choose. All right. So let's talk about questions, comments, hard questions. I can say we'll direct to Rich. Do you want to go ahead and stand up and give the question really loud? It was a good question. Oh, you got a mic, great. Okay. Mic has a mic. Mic has a mic. But I'm bummed. Nobody's ever used that one before. Um, <laughs> the question was, how do, we, um, how do we keep a heart that is able to unlearn and learn, the new, th- uh, learn new things and um, how, cr- how we can have a heart that can build upon what Christ is continually um, revealing while not running after just the next big thing um, or, or this, a, a new revelation that somebody claims to have had Um, but to just stay sensitive and be humble enough to say, actually, we may have got that wrong um, along the way. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, You can maybe turn there another time. I'm already turned there because it was, I was going to, if we had more time, we'd look at Revelation 1 and talk about some of the characteristics of the apostolic in Revelation 1, but I'll just mention a couple of things. 
is John, of course, on the island of Patmos. He says, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance. These are all kind of hallmarks of, to me, the hallmarks of the apostolic that are ours in Christ Jesus. Was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And he says this, on the Lord's day, I was in the spirit. And I won't read it all, but I heard behind me a loud voice. I turned and I saw Jesus. And then he goes on to describe Jesus and all those images that's full of images and pictures. But this is John. This is, not only was he one of the 12, but he was one of the three. Not only was he one of the three, but he was the one. He was the beloved. He was the one who was the closest with Jesus. He was the one who would put his head on his chest and it could hear his heartbeat, could hear his lungs fill with air. They were so close. This is John. He knew Jesus so well. Talks about how he would behold him. He was so beautiful. He was so full of glory. And suddenly, the one who knew him the best has such a revelation of him that his only response is, I'm dead. And he falls at his feet as though dead. If we ever get to the point where we think we've got it, that we've, we've seen the fullness of Christ and we understand his church, we've got it, we, are, we have the market cornered on revelation and on doctrine and on understanding. If anyone has any questions, come to us, we'll sort you out. If we ever stop having ongoing, progressive revelation of Christ Jesus, then we've lost it. Yeah. And, to me, and to me, the key here is he says, on the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit. Yeah. I was in the Spirit. Now, please hear me, right? I love meetings, but he doesn't say I was in a meeting. Is we've got to know what it is to be in the Spirit without simply being in meetings. And then watch our meetings take on a whole new dimension. I was in the spirit, and to me, the spirit of God is sent on earth to lead us into Christ. And he's still here, which means we still need to see more of him and more of him and more of him. That's also the safeguard, I think, that we have of uh, plurality in ministry. We've got brothers, sisters. I believe that the Bible would show us that there's teams of apostles, prophets working together that there's there's brotherhood where we are it's not just up to me to figure everything out but he's put us in a family the body of Christ that's why in Corinthians we read the eye should not say to the hand I don't need you the foot should not say to the whatever it is I don't uh, I'm not needed there's no room for inferiority or superiority in the body of Christ we're all meant to be a part that's joined together does that help answer your question? Other questions? Um, not really a question, but I'd just really like to hear some more. You talked about um, going to plant in Ottawa and just you felt on your heart that wherever the fruit was, that's what you were to pursue, I guess. And just to hear how that started and how that grew, I guess, in the infancy and in Cuba as well. Sure, yeah. Um, I can't remember which one exactly happened first, but um, we had a call. We had a guy come from um, Cuba to come to university, 
and he was a denominational guy and loved the Lord. And for the, he started to see all the things that I was taught, started to see restoration. As we taught it, he, the lights went on in him. Uh, he started to see the nature of the church. He started to see apostles, he started to see all those things. And so he writes his friend back home, which is like his brother. He says, and he writes him, he tells him all this. He says, I'm afraid that you're going to think that I've, that I've lost my way. I'm going to come home at Christmas and I'll explain everything. But he writes to me, he says, I no longer consider myself a part of this denomination. I feel like I've seen something that has gripped my life and I want to share it with you. Well, he writes back and he says, we, I'm, I, I'm now a part of this group and we're starting to see in scripture uh, restoration. And the spirit is speaking to us about the nature of the church and the purpose of the church on the earth. So he goes and sees him at Christmas and God has been showing this, this group of brothers these things, and Raphael, this is the guy's name, he, he says, well, that's what we, I've been being taught back home. So they put out a request, and they say, will you come, and will you help us? And again, because it's, it's him that's building his church, they don't immediately just respond. I have to go and pray. You get all kinds of requests. If you have a website as a church, you're going to get requests from around the world. Please come. We've been blessed by your ministry. We need your input. You're so awesome. We need you. Please come. But it takes, it's not just an opportunity. It's got to take a discerning in the spirit. So the first year, I said no, because I didn't have time to talk to Carrie Jones about it, um, who carries a government into my life. And so I thought, no, I'm going to wait. So I wrote back, not, not right now. Uh, I'll, I'll be praying about it. First chance I get, I talk to Carrie. Carrie and I pray about it. And she says, if you have time, make some time just to see them. So I was down in Cuba on vacation with my family. And I said, I can give you one afternoon, but you have to come to me and meet me where I am. And uh, so they came, and I, and I took my father with me just to have somebody with me. And we met and in, in, in a cafe. And uh, within about 10 minutes, I knew this was a joining of the Lord. And we went, because it's a communist country and they're an underground church. We went and found a kind of a hidden spot on the beach. And we, and we just sat and we prayed together and we talked together about what was on their heart, what was on my heart. And God did a joining very quickly. And then, so I said, I'm going to come back and see you. And I took Todd with me, came back and saw them. And I said, God, this was important to me. Because, as you know, I have four kids. I have a farm. I have lots of, there's other churches of responsibility. I don't need any more work. But if God is in it, then there's going to be the grace to do it. And I said, God, I'm going to go down there with these Cubans. And I need a word. If there's anybody else who can do what you're asking me to do, then send them. But I said, if I'm going to go in, I need a word that is going to unlock the situation. And I'm going to know that you've sent me here for this purpose. And so God gave me a word. I won't spend all of my time talking about it, but about new covenant prophecy. And how, old, how John prophesied toward the cross, he played the dirge. But how Jesus prophesied, he played the flute, which is the wedding song. He prophesied toward the wedding. And how the day of the old covenant prophet was beheaded with John, and how now all prophecy finds its fulfillment in the person of Christ. And everything came alive, and it wasn't all positive. And they were all fighting back and forth, and I said, Todd, these next few sessions are either going to be awesome, or this will be our last session here. <laughs> but praise God, almost everybody embraced it. They had gotten all confused with some, some things, and, uh, and, and it kind of rescued that, that situation simply because of the word of God that came. And then we knew this was something that we were meant to sow into regularly. And now God has joined our heart and joined our, our ministries together. I don't remember the question, but... 
All right. <laughs> Does that answer your question? Yes. Great. Other questions? In uh, Todd talked about how uh, there's kind of an increase in the prophetic or recognition of the prophetic and a chasing after the prophetic. And I think there's been some of that in the apostolic as well. And uh, just what do you think that are wrong perceptions of an apostolic ministry that people can look at a ministry and think it's apostolic when actually it's something else? What, and, and what do you think defines apostolic ministry that kind of... <laughs> <laughs> Well, we can talk about the first one. Yeah. And then for the next week, we'll talk about the second one. <laughs> yeah. Um, <clears throat> so the first part of the question, again, was... Uh, the, oh, yeah. The false markers, if you like. Yeah. The things that people perceive means it's apostolic. A lot of people, because of the... Maybe it's because of the Western mindset, I don't know, uh, or the way the church has been built previously. Um, but a lot of people see the apostolic ministry, or they see the apostle as the CEO as the, the one at the top of the triangle, as the one who's on top, the one who's in control, the one who's in charge. But there's a reason why, biblically, it says that Christ is the chief cornerstone. He's not on the top. He's on the bottom. Seconded by apostles and prophets. That is, they become um, foundations, determine the, the, the height, the size, the location, the direction, the, they, they bear the weight of the building. That's why Paul talks about the weight of the churches. And I think maybe we've, in the, in, in the church of God so far, I think maybe we've misunderstood, uh, in, the, in the restoration of apostolic ministry, we've misunderstood how we represent some of it, because if everybody just thinks of it as being on top, if there's any flesh if there's any sort of ambition, everyone's going to think, oh, that, that's, that's me. I want to be apostolic. I want to be the one in charge. And uh, if you're not called to apostolic ministry, it will kill you. And it will frustrate everyone around you. Because it, it comes with carrying a supernatural burden for the church. And that's why Paul, or John talks about you know, the suffering for the kingdom of God. Part of, to me, one of the hallmarks of the apostolic ministry is, is the tenacity to keep getting kicked around by the enemy and to be able to go through and to keep going and to keep going and to keep going and to keep building. Um, I think people look at somebody who's just really effective in ministry and they think, wow, they're really effective in whatever ministry they have. They're so effective, they've gathered lots of people and maybe they've planted other churches. They must be apostolic. I remember we had a conference once with, and a guy Kerry brought in, down in Cardiff, and he, had, he was a very effective evangelist. And his ministry gift, his ministry mix was like pastoral and evangelist. And he says, everybody that I know who has some revelation on apostles tries to tell me that I'm an apostle, but I know that I'm not. And for so many people, that doesn't fit. Just like when I first went to Cuba, Todd and I would prophesy together and we, we, we would move bringing in the word and they couldn't understand that I wasn't a prophet. Because even though I prophesied a lot, but I can prophesy a lot and not be a prophet. It has more to do with the lens through which you see the word, through which you interact with the Lord and through which you build the church. It's the eyes that, that he's given you. He's caused you to become this, not to act a certain way. 
Um, so often when you see men who are effective in ministry, um, I think, if I can put it this way, we've, we've seen a restoration uh, to a certain degree of the apostolic, prophetic, evangelist, of the fivefold ministries. I think we have a long, long, long way to go in seeing the variety that's in the heart of God and seeing the different measures that are in the heart of God. The different um, spheres and mandates and tasks that God gives the different ministries. In seeing the working together of the different ministries. I think that we've seen a truth and I think it's wonderful. But I know that there's a lot more for us to see. To me, one of the primary dimensions of the apostolic is actually stewarding the mystery of Christ. It's not about planting churches necessarily. James never left Jerusalem. But it's about, it's about having and receiving the mystery that is Christ. It's part of if we had done, we would read through this bit in Revelation, you can read through it on your own time. But where John is, he sees fresh once again the Christ who he already knew so well but again, he's in the spirit and he has a fresh revelation of Christ that totally undoes him. And he sees Christ in all of his glory and then he spends his time helping us see what he has seen. We have 10 minutes. Any other questions? Mm-hmm. Um just talking about the different ministries, the apostolic and prophetic. I read somewhere some time ago, and perhaps you could comment on this, that the apostle was described as being like the architect and a prophet is the building inspector. Well, nobody likes the building inspector. <laughs> <laughs> is, is there some truth in that, do you think? Yeah, How do you say that last part again? The, the prophet is the building inspector and the, the prophet tends to get kicked around a lot and thrown into pits and things because they don't like the building inspector. But the, the apostle as an architect. Yeah, I think certainly the apostolic being uh, an architect is a scriptural image. I think everybody's experience of natural architects and natural building inspectors might be different. Um, but I think that there's an aspect to the apostolic that is certainly seeing the heavenly blueprint. And there's an aspect to the prophetic where at times, I know because I work with some prophets, where I sometimes get annoyed uh, where I think, ah, we're just in the middle of building. I don't know if we can keep going. But part of the working together of the apostolic is the, is the let's go this way. And okay, well, here's how we do it. Let's, let's move forward. And this goes here, and this goes here. Yes, and God show me this. And it's, it's, to me, it's a little bit like, and every analogy breaks down. Every human analogy breaks down. That's not in scripture. But in my mind, it's a little bit like Todd and I joke that uh, I'll, I'll, I'll come up and I'll, I'll talk about or Todd will show up and he'll talk about the second story of a home. And I'll start building the stairs. Say, so, okay, if that's where we're going, if this is in the heart of God, this is how we've got to get there. This is what it's going to look like. Now, like I say, every analogy breaks down, but that's one of the ways in which Todd and I often work together. Other thoughts or questions? At the beginning, your concept of the kingdom of God was heaven. And you've obviously been touching on this all the way through but could you could you say now how you would see the kingdom of god what um what are the hallmarks what what, what is it what 
just to help us sure. what is what is the kingdom of God as you would see it now? Yeah, I think there's a reason why when the disciples said, teach us how to pray. He said, our father, which again, starts with the family. Our father, who art in heaven, holy is your name. Thy kingdom come. And then the same phrase, thy will be done on earth as it already currently presently is in heaven. So to me, the kingdom of God comes whenever you see the will of God expressed. Whenever you see the will of God uh, made manifest, you see that this is, the, this is the reality of heaven. So when you begin to think, when you go through your day, when you go through your life, especially as you've, as you've spent time in the word, you begin to understand the realities of heaven. You begin to understand what God's will is. You understand who he is and what he's like. And then you're, you look at the world and you think, wait a minute, this does not match up with the heavenly vision. This does not match up with the, the realities of heaven. And I know them because I've seen them in the word. I know them because he's spoken to me. And then, then like I say, we become then the conduits, the ambassadors to, uh, of the will of God on the earth. We become the agents of change because we've seen something in the heavenlies. The church, I had to do an essay at Covenant College and it was that the church is both the product of and the agent of the kingdom. I'll let you think about that for just a second. Carrie assigned it. <laughs> the church is both the product of and the agent of the kingdom. All right, let me, let me just say a couple more things in closing. God is building his church. Christ is building his church on this earth. He is magnificent. My prayer over this house, over all the places that we have relationship over the church of God is that it's filled with men and women who have seen Christ. And part of my job is to help them see him, is to see Christ because he is magnificent. Like John here says, you know, and when you see him, your whole life is undone. Amen. And you realize there was nothing I had that was worth anything anyway. When you see him, he gets a hold of your life. He changes your name, so to speak. Calls you beloved, calls you a son. And then you begin to find your call, your purpose in the church of God. And you realize that the church has been given keys to cause this earth to look like heaven until the whole earth is filled with men and women who, who have fulfilled the creational mandate. That is, fill the earth with people who are made in the image of God. Fill the earth who walk and talk, and act, and smell, and look like God. This is the church that he's building. Not only is he magnificent, but the church he's building is magnificent. The church he's building is beautiful. 
She's a pure and spotless bride. Like I said, she's an army on the advance. She's a house that's being built with living stones. She's a temple that's going to be a beacon to the world. She's a vineyard that's productive. This is the church that he's not going to build simply when we all get raptured into heaven or when, we all, when he comes on his return. So many people are waiting for Christ to do in his second coming what he already did in his first coming. Yeah. And now he's given all of his power through the Holy Spirit to you and me yeah. to fill this world yeah. with the church yeah. until the knowledge of the glory of God fills this earth like the waters cover the sea. Yeah. All right, let's stand. Just turn your attention to the Lord for a moment. Father God, I thank you. I thank you that you have revealed supernaturally to us that you are the Christ. That's why we're here. That's why we're in this room, Lord, is because you have shown yourself to us. And Lord God, I ask for everyone here, like John, like we read in John, that we wouldn't get satisfied with the revelation that we have but that, God, you would show us yourself fresh, that you would show us yourself fresh every day, that we would see more and more and more of you, that we wouldn't get satisfied with the revelation of Christ that we have, but that we would pursue you to see you more and more and more and more. God, that as we see you, that we would know who it is that you've called us to be, that we would see our identity is found in you, that we would rise up and take our place, our function and our fit in the church of God. Not just in meetings, but on a Monday and on a Tuesday and on a Wednesday. That you would express, that you would express your Christhood in us. In the course of our daily life. On our way to work, on our way to school. When we interact with people, that you would express who you are through us. Amen. That the world would know that you are the Christ, the son of the living God, because you've sent us to this world. Lord God, I ask that as you continue to establish your church, that the keys of the kingdom would be so real and so evident that we would, as we walk throughout our day, that we would bind the things that need to be bound and loose the things that need to be loosed until this whole earth reflects the glory of Jesus, the Christ. In Jesus' all-sufficient name, amen. Thanks for listening today. For more information about Living Rock Church and for more great teaching, visit www.livingrockchurch.org.uk.